I'm Sage. And I'm William. And this is Half Half as as Well, well. where we promise Tolkien lore half as much as you should like. Explained half as well as you deserve. And we really got to say half is is a good uh, goal for us today. This is our second recording in quarantine for (laughs) COVID-19. We're still sick. Yeah, still getting over it. (laughs) Okay. Um, But we've started on The Fellowship of the Ring. Yes, and I am very excited. Um, Not that I have anything against The Hobbit, but I'm just really glad we're getting into the real uh the real meat of the uh the Tolkien legendarium yeah I um this is definitely my first time ever reading the Lord of the Rings so it's been great so far and I'm actually enjoying it a lot more than reading The Hobbit yeah and we recently just got the Andy Serkis audiobook, and I, for one, am not really into audiobooks. I like the feel of a nice book, nice tome in my hands. Uh, but Andy Serkis does a great job. Yeah, he's it's, doing great with those. those I are love. Definitely, I love all his voices. Um, uh, whether that's the way you're reading the book or not, it is definitely worth a listen. Um, he he does an excellent job. Of course, he does. <laughs> I mean, come on. But um, yeah, let's just get into it. So first, I want to say, I definitely would not have uh, heard this other than on the audiobook. I I probably wouldn't have taken the time to read this foreword by Tolkien. Sometimes I force myself to read things like that, but no. Um, But hearing it on the audiobook um, was really funny. There's a foreword by Tolkien where he talks about how um, after writing The Hobbit, he sort of kept going on his Silmarillion at the time, or or the works that eventually became the Silmarillion, and uh, finally brought it into his publisher, and they were like, there's no way, dude. (laughs) Um, You think you were going to publish, like, your elvish fan fiction? Like, no. It was so funny. Um, Where are all the hobbits? And, yeah, I I have to say, like, as someone who's interested in writing um, personally, uh, for a like modern fantasy audience, I was just I'm tickled thinking of Tolkien bringing manuscripts to his publishers. And back then it was, you know, people published a lot more like literary stuff that that was wordy and uh, kind of um, heavier to get through, you know, not as as not as entertainment focused as the modern market is. But then just imagining him trying to get a a book published today, I was like, there's just no way. Like, he would have such struggles um, getting through. And I'll I'll probably talk more about that as as things like that come up. I mean, I think he would probably have trouble getting Lord of the Rings published. Oh, 100%. Um, Much less the Silmarillion. No, it's kind of wild. Like, in the fantasy writing community, you know, people compare things to Tolkien all the time and, and... want to like everyone has him as this like gold standard like yeah and it's really funny because there's not a lot of modern fiction that's written as densely you know and and uh as like meandering to the climax you know most most things have to now you know you've got to start off something really big in the first couple of pages uh, of a manuscript so i just think that's really funny well it seems like he had just as much trouble in the 1940s. So, of course, they said no to the Silmarillion. 
Yeah, they really just wanted a sequel to The Hobbit with more hobbits. Right. Hobbits are what sells. <laughs> exactly. Um, and uh, so then he wrote The Lord of the Rings. So uh, weaving as much of his his favorite stuff of the elves into Yeah, and, and I'll say I think it's like really funny um, because it really is, when I read The Lord of the Rings, looking at it in the larger context of these books that he had written and with the Silmarillion, it's kind of a sequel to the Silmarillion disguised as a sequel to the Hobbit. He sneaks it like he starts off in the Shire with these hobbits and he's like, oh, not just one, but here's four hobbits. And then you it... want hobbits, buddy? I'll give you fucking hobbits. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. And then like, as we'll get on, maybe not in this episode, but uh, he really starts to get more into the history of elves and men and uh, Sauron and the Dark Lord and all the larger forces yeah. in this world that are really tied back way back to the first age so we're seeing it through the view of these hobbits but he's still trying to tell his story of uh he name drops all this stuff that you know you don't really have any context for if you've never read the silmarillion so yeah it's pretty funny too it's something I'll, I'll talk about later as we go through each of the chapters though is like he gets really into talking about the intricacies of hobbit society so it does feel a little bit like vengeful yeah <laughs> Yeah, a little bit. But yeah, so with that, do you want to like just jump into uh, chapter one? Yeah, so chapter one, a long expected party, a little funny nod back to the first chapter of The Hobbit. Um, an unexpected an party. An unexpected party. And uh, this is, of course, Bilbo's birthday party. 111th or 111. 111. <laughs> which I, I love. Yeah. And all the Shires really talking about him and now like the subject of his old adventures is now coming back to the forefront of Absolutely. the hobbits of the shire and everyone's talking about it again yeah um so this is a pretty pretty big deal uh it's said that bilbo sort of buys out um or like calls all of these merchants into town and some of the other hobbits are grumbling about how he won't use local, you know, he's he should buy locally or something like yeah. that. But they still line up to buy a bunch yeah. of goods. And well, he does yeah, end up he, buying yeah. locally. Yeah. He does buy a lot locally. So we get a lot of these hobbits at the bar talking about Bilbo and his adventures. And we get a really good look at uh, the gaffer, mm-hmm. Sam's dad. Mm-hmm. And how he's worked with him for years. And so the gaffer is really kind of like the authority on Bilbo because he's his, he was his gardener. And they say he's like quite the authority on uh, growing of like potatoes. <laughs> and he seems to have a very favorable view of Bilbo, whereas a lot of the other people in the Shire are very um, skeptical. Skeptical or they're like, he's a weirdo. Yeah. And he's just like, well, he's weird. Yeah. But you couldn't ask for a nicer hobbit. Right. And, you know, you get the Miller, who's really kind of grumbly and, like, kind of plays the devil's advocate a little bit. And I just think it's, like, a great chapter. Growing up in a small town, just this gossip, it's it's just really real. Yeah, everything that happens in the Shire, basically through this whole section until the very end, uh, reminds me a ton about where we grew up. Mm-hmm. And uh, just how there's, you know, I, I think sometimes if you're coming from a bigger place, you think that everyone in a smaller place, like, knows each other. But uh, you don't always realize how small like thin those lines between different groups of people in small areas are and and the hobbits are a really great example of that where it's just like it's not that they're cool with all hobbits like if you live on a different road than they do it there's like a cultural difference oh yeah they're just like oh you're from like 
200 yards that way <laughs> like people over there are, are weird, weird or queer <laughs> yeah, you know queer and it's just like and then they think the same about the others so it's yeah. just really funny we also get a little bit of history about frodo and his parents and their tragic drowning and how bilbo mm-hmm. took frodo in which um, i didn't know that before i didn't know yeah. he initially was like a brandy buck you know and, and growing up at brandy hall yeah and and yeah and so bilbo really took him in and really screwed over those sackville bagginses pretty awesome yeah what a move but yeah so that gives us our first little look at who's going to be the new protagonist of this story right. it's not going to be bilbo but his uh nephew. younger cousin nephew <laughs> frodo yeah. and then you know the uh gandalf enters yeah and he just stirs shit up like always like always he is there of course to prepare for the the party as well um and it's at this point that we we kind of see that there's a plan behind everything else yeah bilbo talks about his like joke and gandalf's like i wonder who will laugh yeah and like uh so there's like something going on yeah bilbo has something in store and gandalf knows about it um but none of us are really sure what that is yet and none of the hobbits really know um So that takes us to the birthday party. Yep. Which is also Frodo's. Right. Yes. They they share a birthday, which I also don't think I realized that. Mm-hmm. Um, and Bilbo has invited 144 people um, to his party uh, or a gross of people. And um, when he announces this to the crowd, um, as much as that might be like, kind of an auspicious number or like a significant number to the hobbits a lot of the hobbits start becoming a little bit like confused at at, as to whether that's a good thing or not and and many of them suspect that they've only been invited to reach that number (laughs) yeah which is pretty offensive to them (laughs) it's really offensive to them that is the opposite of you know this these creatures who uh, uphold partying and uh, good food and cheer above all else to be invited to a party just to kind of like make a nice little number. Um, yeah. And I want to say like, I think that's just a very funny bit of Bilbo humor that like, I don't think we saw in Bilbo in The Hobbit because no. he was still, you know, in his middle aged years and stuff. After his adventures and he comes home, it seems like he stopped giving a shit about being proper. Oh, absolutely. And he's just like taking the piss out of all the hobbits constantly. And he's just having so much fun with it. I think, you know, as much as Bilbo's mind definitely expanded through his his adventures in The Hobbits, I think when that actually like settles into place is when he comes back and is treated so unbearably differently right yeah i feel like this is still a bit of revenge for coming home and they're auctioning off his place (laughs) and then all the weeks after where he had to prove that he wasn't dead yeah Um, yeah i think just like you stupid like (laughs) yeah um i i think that that experience more so than like dealing with a dragon or seeing the giants and stuff like that i think that is what changed him was really coming home and realizing how small-minded his his yeah, well, and how was. different he was and yeah. how yeah exactly he, i don't think he realized how much of a part of that he was <laughs> right. until he came back and was like oh i don't want anything to do with you right. like close-minded stupid hobbits yeah exactly so he becomes very eccentric and uh so yeah this whole like one gross i just think is really funny yeah and then also like his uh line that we got the name of our podcast from 
Uh, I don't know half of you half as well as I should like, and I like less than half of you half as well as you deserve. Yeah, which and they're is all, pretty great. <laughs> and they're like, wait, what does that mean? Like, is yeah. he insulting us? Is he complimenting compliment? us? Like, <laughs> Which it actually is a compliment, what he's saying, but it is, it is so slyly worded that um, it's a compliment to most of the people there. But it, it does sort of, um, there are actually, if you search half as well, um, like on Google and look at the images, people have actually made like charts breaking down like how this like comment is totally directed at the Sackville Vagginses um, and is like specifically like it mathematically works out that it, he's only really addressing a few people with that. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, leave it to Tolkien to like create this joke kind of that's also this mathematical wordplay. Yeah. Um, but it's brilliant. It's really funny. Yeah. And of course, you know, big deal. He, after he sort of has his little speech, he says that he's leaving goodbye and he puts on his ring and disappears. Um, and luckily, of course, Gandalf made a big firework go off at the same time. So many of the hobbits think that Gandalf spirited him away to somewhere um, yeah. and that he knows where he's gone. Mm-hmm. This is where we first get to see um, more so than ever in The Hobbit, other than maybe some inferences we could make from Gollum's behavior around the ring. But this is when we first get to see the true power of the one ring. Yeah, we start to see Bilbo acting pretty un-Bilbo-like yeah. and kind of um, like something almost has a hold of him. Yeah. I like this section because you can see how Bilbo really has all intent to leave the ring for Frodo as he planned. Um, and he's even trying to like, you know, put it down, but he keeps putting it back in his pocket. He keeps... Uh, like carrying it with him. Um, as soon as Gandalf pressures him about it, he becomes extremely defensive and, and yeah. almost violent in his speech. Yeah, he becomes pretty irate. And I mean, even at one point calls it his precious. Yeah. Which is very alarming. <laughs> very alarming. Gandalf's always been a little wary about Bilbo and, and the ring and how he was very guarded about it. And he always thought that was strange. But this is really what sets him off and he's just like i need to find out if this is one of the rings of power yeah um and and really sets him off to like leave and go in search of answers this is really kind of takes us into chapter two shadow of the past where we find out that you know like the birthday incident caused quite an uproar in the shire just like how when bilbo came home after his travels it takes frodo some convincing of the other hobbits that like, Bilbo's still alive, but yes, I am, like, the new proprietor of all of this, you yeah. know, the, of this hobbit hole and all of the belongings here. Yeah. We get a similar scene to the first chapter where we had kind of the gaffer and the miller talking and gossiping about Bilbo. And now we have the gaffer's son, Sam, mm -hmm. and the miller's son yeah. at the bar. <laughs> it's just, like, this generational, like, nothing's changed. It's like they're going to be the new old-timers sitting around Very now. relatable again. <laughs> exactly. And we. this is the first time we get some strange hints of things happening in the outside world, too. Yeah. And, you know, Sam talks about how he see someone had seen a giant walking in the North Farthing or, like, a giant tree person walking, which is very reminiscent of the Ents. And the Miller's just like, that sounds like a bunch of bullshit to me. 
And so we get a sense of Sam and, you know, he's kind of uh, doing for Frodo what his father did for Bilbo, you know, looking after his garden and stuff. And Sam, we see as someone who's really into tales of elves and dragons. Mm-hmm. and um, He likes the adventurers that Bilbo went on. Yeah, and the, and the other hobbits kind of dismiss this and are, have a very negative view of it, but he's very, like, thoughtful and pensive about it. And we see that Sam, you know, simple gardener as he is, you know, kind of has a, a mind for some of the uh, things beyond the borders of the Shire. Like we mentioned before, it's been 17 years at this point. So Frodo is 50 years old, right? Yeah, he's yeah. the same age Bilbo was when he set off on his adventure. Exactly. Um, and... Gandalf comes back into town and he has a lot of stuff to talk about with Frodo. That is, uh, it sort of starts casually of like, Hey, you got that ring, you know, you know, how are you doing? Okay. And it gets really heavy really quickly. Yeah. And this is how we first get introduced to all the lore of the one ring of power and, uh, Sauron, you know, there's no like prologue in this, like the movies detailing, from the forging of the rings in the second age no. <laughs> through the war of the last alliance you know it just starts with bilbo's birthday party and right. the, the ring and it's still just that one silly magic ring from the hobbit and then it's not till this chapter that we get a sense of the larger history that gandalf has now found in his 17 years of searching for answers and it seems like frodo has has noticed there is a quality about the ring that he doesn't fully understand where mm. he'll find himself holding on to it or missing it if it's not in his pocket you know and um, he's never put it on, but he uh, does like it. He has an attraction for it. And when he kind of doubts Gandalf, this is again, uh, you know, I like this section as well, because we, we get to see that magnetism of the ring where Frodo is trying to chuck it into the fire. And then he makes the motion with his hand, but his hand just goes right back into his pants. Yes. And I love this part because it is total foreshadowing of the end of the story. Mm -hmm. No one can of their own free will destroy the ring. Right. We see this in the beginning of the story all the way back in the Shire before the danger has started. Right. um, Just with his fireplace, which honestly can't do anything to the ring. (laughs) Right. But Frodo thinks it can and he can't do it. Right. And so that already tells you enough about the power this ring has over people. And that's sort of, you know, another test that Gandalf is running as well on, yeah, on the ring. Yeah, the thing is, you know, it's just like he has suspicions. So, you know, obviously didn't he know it was the one ring? And well, no, he had to go and study a lot of the stuff. This could have been one of just the lesser rings of power. Um, maybe not one of the three or the seven or the nine, but, you know, one of the other ones that weren't that famous. But once he found out about the elvish script that's on it with, mm-hmm. you know, the ring verse, um, he wants to know for sure. And so he, he runs Frodo through some of these tests. And then it's only in this scene that now he, he knows. He knows for certain that this is Sauron's ring. Yes. Yeah. He guessed it. But he, again, <laughs> Gandalf's very scientific minded. He wants the proofs. Right. And so this was like the final test. Yeah. It's also in the course of talking about the lore of the ring that we hear more about Gollum and his his backstory. And basically, Frodo has a terrible risk. He is disgusted, really, by Gollum. Yeah, he's like, he can't um, even imagine that he was once a hobbit. Right. Uh, he's, those stories he's grown up hearing about Gollum, it's like he is such a loathsome creature. You know, on one hand, I think that's a very understandable thing. But it's also like, clearly, he's trying to distance 
himself as a hobbit from anything that could ever be so corrupted as Gollum. Exactly. And I mean, to me, it almost even reminds me of people that are like evolution deniers. And they're like, how dare you suggest the notion that we came from apes? It's like he's very disgusted by this. And Gandalf's just like, well, nevertheless, it's true. Right. Whether you like it or not. Yeah. I think it's very interesting because Frodo is a character we always associate as being very like wise and whatnot. But here in these earlier chapters, we do get a different view of Frodo where he's, even though he's more open-minded than other hobbits because of being raised by Bilbo, he still does have this hobbit-like closed-mindedness about things. Yeah, and, and what I would say is, like, he's young. He he feels really young, and um, he just seems a little more outspoken than Bilbo does at the beginning of The Hobbit, probably because he's been raised by a post-hobbit Bilbo. Yes, exactly. <laughs> um, so he doesn't seem to have a lot of trouble, like, speaking his mind. It's... It's not that he has a problem with someone disagreeing with him. He kind of receives Gandalf's argument and mm-hmm. has a conversation about it. Um, but he does seem very, like, headstrong. Yeah, he's a little indignant. <laughs> uh, he, he sort of laments that Bilbo didn't kill off Gollum when he, he came across yeah. him. Um, because Gollum is the entire reason that now Frodo is going to have to go on the run with the ring. And Gandalf totally stops him dead in that argument and says, like, absolutely not. Had Bilbo killed him, it's very likely Bilbo would have, like, totally fallen to the mercy of the ring. Yeah, I like this explanation for why Bilbo did not become instantly corrupted. It's because he started his possession of the ring with an act of mercy. Right. And um, that kind of kept his soul pure in a way. And yeah, and as we know, like Frodo will have his own meeting with Gollum at some point. And he'll have his own trial with the ring and he'll have to learn firsthand that there isn't really much to do competing with the power of the One Ring. Yeah. With his later relationship with Gollum, I I find it very interesting that here at the beginning of the story, he's advocating for killing him. Right. Yeah. Um, It really just shows his growth as a character throughout the story and his relationship to mercy which is almost becomes his defining trait right um he now knows he needs to leave the shire to save all the people in the shire and they start planning what that's going to look like right before the end of this chapter uh we get his first companion to go with him on this journey sam who was listening (laughs) yes (laughs) and um so yeah gandalf's just like we're gonna make up this story where you're moving to Crick Hollow and Sam's gonna go with you to be your gardener and like we said earlier like do for you like the gaffer used to do for old Bilbo and they make plans to leave later that year during Frodo's birthday and Gandalf says I'll be back by then so in the next chapter three is company his birthday comes and they're waiting for Gandalf yep and he doesn't show up and uh this is when he starts to get concerned because you know, there's a lot hinging on this. And it's interesting how slowly this whole process happens um, to me again in the movie. And we'll, we'll talk more once we do a watch with me with the, the film, we'll talk more about the differences, but it is worth noting how really drawn out this preparation is um, comparatively in the book. And it's sort of like sitting on this ticking time bomb where Frodo has no idea when Sauron or his black riders might, come to take this ring from him or or 
Yeah, like time's running short, but they also don't want to like leave in a hay and make an no, even bigger scene. Exactly. So, um, and they're trying to basically leave no one in Hobbiton with any idea where they can be found for real, or or that they've left. Period. You know. Yeah, they just want the Hobbits of the Shire to think he's over in Crick Hollow, and from there he can uh, subtly slip away. And by the time everyone knows that he's gone. It'll kind of be too late. He'll already be far gone, maybe at Rivendell or something. Right. So, and it's just around this time that the first Black Rider shows up um, and is speaking to the gaffer. Yeah, and I mean at this point we don't know who he is. Uh, they think he's just like a man, but there's something very odd about him. He makes everyone very unsettled, and and Frodo just thinks, oh, all these inquisitive people asking about me and right whatnot. But so he sets off with Pippin and with Sam. Um, to try to get away from all these people asking questions, they run into the Black Rider again on the road. And it's sniffing around, and it's being very weird, and they just don't like it. <laughs> yeah, there, there's something definitely eerie. And, um, you know, in reading it, images of, like, the Grim Reaper kind of are brought up. It's just a large, black, cloaked figure um, mm-hmm. riding on a large horse, and uh, there's an air about it that is just not right and not of this world. Yeah. And just as the air is not right with this black rider coming around, then we get a much more wholesome air come into town as some elves come up and uh, seem to uh, frighten off the black rider. Yes. Yeah. And this is our first look at elves in this book. Mm-hmm. They are less frivolous seeming than the the elves are are first depicted in The Hobbit. They call themselves exiles. Something that's really weird is that they already know who Frodo is. They address him by his name. Yeah, and Frodo's never met any of these elves before. (laughs) He has no idea who they are. Um, But they've seen him around with Bilbo. They take them to Woodhall, which is this... Sounds like it's a sacred place to them, kind of, and they celebrate the uh, the stars as they come out. So the hobbits bunk down with them for the night. They have some good food and songs. It seems like all of the other hobbits fall asleep, but Frodo stays up late into the night speaking with Gildor of of his quest. Yeah, and asking about Black Riders, and he has a hard time getting any answers out of him, really. Yeah. <laughs> um, we really see kind of like the elvish nature, which is... To be very guarded with speech and like they they say something about advice being dangerous. Right. And so they, they're very hesitant to tell him one way or the other what he should do. Yeah. And I, I think that kind of goes to the larger point of these elves. You know, they're not really involved with Middle Earth at this point. Uh, all the elves are leaving Middle Earth and going back across the sea to Valinor, which is why they're called exiles. Mm-hmm. Uh, long ago, these elves came to... Middle Earth from Valinor. There's a whole big story about that called the Silmarillion. <laughs> and uh, and yeah, so they've been kind of living this exiled life in Middle Earth. Um, but now with the rise of Sauron again, a lot of them are leaving and just they're they're done they've put in their fight and uh they're not really involved at this point they have no desire to to hand out advice freely exactly but he does say to, you know, take people with you that you can trust and that are willing to go with you because Frodo's probably going to need help on this journey. Right. This brings us to the next chapter. Uh, they wake up, basically, and the, the elves have left. Um, and they continue on their way. One thing I want to talk about was Sam and 
his interaction with the elves, which Frodo asks him about. And he was like, oh, yeah, I, you know, I talked to them last night a little bit, too. And Sam was like the one that's grown up, you know, hearing tales about elves from Mr. Bilbo. And he's always wanted to go see them. This is why he so readily accepts going with Frodo on his journey. He's like, me go and see the elves? And now before they're even out of the Shire, he's already seen some. And uh, he kind of gives this answer that, again tells Frodo that there's more to Samwise Gamgee than meets the eye. You know, he's like, do you like them? Or he's like, well, they're kind of above my likes and dislikes. And again, this kind of gets to the point of the elves are just like, they're just on a whole nother level. Yeah. And, you know, it's not at all what he expects, but it is also like such an experience for him that it kind of changes him. He's like, I can kind of see ahead a little. It widens his perspective of the world. Yeah, and he he basically confirms with Frodo, like, absolutely, I still want to keep going. It's not to see mountains or see dragons or even see more elves. It's because I know we need to go. Well, and he says, like, I know now there's something I need to do before the end. I don't know what it is. Yeah. But I know I have a role to play. Which is pretty crazy. I mean, again, in these earlier chapters, we're getting some foreshadowing of things that happen much later in the Oh, book. absolutely. And so I just think that even Sam, it's crazy that Sam's first interaction with elves, he kind of has a foreshadowing of his eventual role, which is crucial. Right. Um, you know, a lot of people say, you know, Sam is the real main character. I mean, I'd say, <laughs> you know, Fred is still the main character, but... Um, but yeah, I mean, Sam becomes a hero in his own right. The Black Rider is hot on their trail. Um, yeah, they keep having these small little run-ins just kind of, uh, they're just being dogged by them. Yeah, making out in the nick of time. And, uh, they eventually wind up in Farmer Maggot's, uh, fields. Yeah. And, (laughs) and I personally love this part. I love Farmer Maggot. Yeah. It's, it's very different from the movies where Mary and Pippin are like these rascals on the run from him. It turns out that Frodo was the one who had anything to fear. He was the little rascal (laughs) back in the day. And Mary and Pippin are actually the ones on good terms with him. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, he's just kind of this old sort of standoffish farmer, but you know, if he knows you, like he's a really nice guy and uh, it's said that his standoffishness is because he's like on the border right. uh, where there are strange things going on. And he has these dogs. And, uh, you know, I, I do think it's interesting. We know that hobbits are are smaller than a normal human. The dogs are described as being wolfish and terrifying. So I, I wonder how big they are compared to the hobbits. You know, I, I think it's easy to imagine like, oh, they're just large dogs. But like, are they as large as the, the hobbits themselves? Oh, yeah, that's interesting to think about. I've yeah. never thought about that before. Yeah, maybe they could ride them like little ponies. Yeah, or exactly. <laughs> <laughs> um, but they're welcomed in by Farmer Maggot. And um, he's actually like, hey, Baggins. Oh, my gosh. Well, the Black Rider was just here. Dude, this dude's everywhere. Yeah. and uh, that or, of course, one, or one of them. Yeah. Um, that, of course, makes them all concerned. But... Uh, we also realize again that, uh, the hobbits are difficult people (laughs) and, um, if they're difficult to other hobbits, they're even more difficult to non-hobbits. Uh, and basically even at the offering of gold for information about where Frodo is, Farmer Maggot chases the, you know, the Black Rider away. Or yeah, or he just tells him to like screw Screw off. off. And it's, um, which I think is pretty awesome. It's pretty awesome. (laughs) Yeah, it's pretty great. I mean, this is a ring wraith, you know? So, um, 
Yeah, I, I love Farmer Mike. He's he's great. And he ends up sending them on their way with fresh mushrooms. Yeah. <laughs> and they run into Mary, who at first they think was a writer. And they get on their way, which takes us to the next chapter, A Conspiracy Unmasked. I love this chapter. So they finally have arrived in Crick Hollow, Crick Hollow at Frodo's new estate. They're settling in. Mary has prepared them all baths and has everything set up nicely for them. And the whole time Frodo is deciding whether he has time to stay at all, like overnight, or if he needs to leave immediately um, and continue on his way and how he's going to break it to his friends that he's he's going to head out. Yeah, and he's really dreading breaking it to them, and he's working himself all up, and he's starting to, like, tell Merry and Pippin and uh, Fatty Bulger, who's the other hobbit that's there, and they're just like, yeah, we know. <laughs> yeah, we know everything. We literally know exact like, we know about the ring, we know that you have to leave, like, we, yeah, and, you know, for Merry and Pippin, they're coming with him. Yeah, and I think this is a great introduction to, even though we've seen Merry and Pippin in the previous chapters, they're just kind of some random hobbits that are yeah. there. Like some of his just lesser cousins and stuff. But but from Frodo's point of view, it's only like he thinks him and Sam know. We find out that these two other little uh, cousins of his have just been the whole time getting everything ready. Absolutely. Uh, planning to go. And like they're, they're committed. They're like, we're going. Yeah, so at this point, Frodo's just like, well shit, I don't know if I can trust anyone. Like, you guys have been lying to <laughs> you guys, me this whole time. You, you've known everything. Yeah, and they're just like, well, like, you can trust us to, like, go with you and stick with you, but, like, you can't trust us to leave you to go ahead. Right, and, like, be on your own and, and yeah. be alone. Uh, so instantly, they're just, like, very loyal and intelligent and crafty. And, and they even say just, like, yeah, we've kept your secret better than you have. Yeah, exactly. Um, You haven't been very Like, uh, we, we've known about discreet. the ring. Yeah. And Mary says something about how he's known about the ring since before Bilbo left and that Frodo is even less careful about the ring than Bilbo was. Yeah. Mary really seems to be the ringleader of yeah. this group. Um, <laughs> he's been in it since like, and this is back before Bilbo left the Shire, which was like 17 years prior. Right. So he was really young. Yeah. Um, and, and then he even snuck into his house and read his book. Yeah, exactly. So he knows all about he Gollum knows, and the ring. Yeah. And, um, he knows all of that with their fully informed uh, decision to join his group they decide that they're going to leave immediately. And they've already made all the preparations to do that. Like I say, a very efficient conspiracy. <laughs> yeah. And to avoid the road, they decide to go through the old forest. And then this is when Fatty Bulger's just like, no, 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 I'm out. Um, and so he's going to stay behind and watch the place. But one thing I want to say before they set out and go into the old forest, Frodo has a dream that night of... Uh, first, it's just like he he dreams of like he's looking down on some trees and there's like all of these creatures sniffing and stuff, which kind of, you know, reminds us of the Black Riders. But then it changes and he hears the sound and he realizes it's the sound of the sea, even though he's never been there. Mm. And it said that it's often troubled his dreams before. Mm-hmm. So we know he's dreamed of the sea in the past. And speaking of what we had said about these earlier chapters having these foreshadowing of his of the things that happened much later. This isn't just foreshadowing. I mean, this is almost like prophecy on Frodo's part, and which we will see as we go forward. Frodo does have dreams that are either like past, present, future, but they are things that are happening or going to happen. And 
it's something that I think really sets him apart from the rest of the hobbits and something that we don't see in the movies. Uh, he's a, an exceptional hobbit and he, he does have kind of foresight on him. Mm-hmm. And so we're, he's kind of seeing the end of his road already at the beginning of his journey. You know, his destiny is the sea. And I just find that very striking that just right here, right before they leave the Shire for good, he has this dream of his eventual fate. But then that leads us into chapter six, the old forest. And just as they predicted, the old forest is a pretty creepy and wild place. Although Mary's kind of, again, sort of like leading hey, them. Hey, we, we, we go in this all the time. <laughs> yeah. And well, I just think that's like a great thing about Mary and the Buckland hobbits and also like the Marish hobbits like uh, Farmer Maggot. We see this difference from the other hobbiton hobbits um where you know they're not afraid of boating yeah Fa- they, you know mary's the one that ferries them across the river they're and, much more interested in adventure <laughs> and he's like yeah sometimes we go in there and yeah. um and he's like is the old forest weird sure is it like everything uh fatty bulger's nurse told him about goblins and wolves i don't believe any of that yeah um but yeah i, I really like mary in these chapters he's very bold he's just kind of that adventurous hobbit that we heard about in The Hobbit, about how some hobbits were like that, right. but... Across the water. Across the water, <laughs> yeah, exactly. But not Bilbo in the Baggins family. I, I just like that there are some hobbits that have none of that stuffiness. Right. They're just like total adventure, yeah. adventurous hobbits. And I think Mary's a really good representation of that. So he's kind of like leading them, but the trees are kind of very tight and closing in around them. They're having trouble making their way through. They're yelling at the trees. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And they're getting really frustrated and the trees are getting kind of frustrated back. Like it drops um, a branch in their path and it's pretty unsettling. And just, I mean, the idea that trees are alive. I mean, this is where we, this comes from here is in the story and that becomes important much later on right as we know but um right now it's just like there's no ints it seems there's just you know these trees that have kind of a a will of their own and they move too as they continue through the forest they're trying to go north but the the trees keep preventing that from happening and pushing them further south and deeper into the old forest yeah and to the uh, Withy Windle Valley, which Mary says is like that's the center of where all the weirdness comes from. And then we meet a uh, a minor antagonist of the story, Old Man Willow. They come into the Withy Windle Valley where there's just willows everywhere, and this willow tree is singing the song of sleep, and they get really drowsy. And I really like how here Sam is the one to resist it. Mm-hmm. Uh, Mary and Pippin kind of fall first and then Frodo's kind of like something's not right I'm gonna go put my feet in the water Um, but then he eventually falls asleep and the tree pushes him in and thank god Sam was there to pull him out (laughs) Um, we'll see a lot of that going forward But, but yeah so I've just always liked how Sam is the one most resistant to that and then they run off screaming for help and we get introduced to a very strange man yes Tom Bombadil shows up singing his silly songs. Singing his heart out. Yeah. Just very odd. <laughs> yeah. Here in the middle of this spooky, uh, enchanted forest, there's just this random guy walking around singing songs, and he's not really afraid of anything. And he's like, oh, I, old man Willow, I got the song for him. And then he 
sings a song. He's like, you let him out again. And he, old man Willow submits to him and releases Mary and Pippin. Yeah. Who were inside of him. (laughs) So yeah, this guy, whoever he is, has some sort of power with his songs. And it's just very unclear. And this strange man invites him back up to his house, uh, for dinner and shelter. And I mean, they're very quick to oblige at this point, I would say, you know, so we'll find out more about this guy that kind of takes us to the end of the chapter here. But I mean, actually we won't find out too much more about him. <laughs> <laughs> no one will. Cause he's just the greatest mystery in Tolkien's whole work. Yeah. So after all these trials, they finally have come to some shelter. Yes. And uh, it's a good place. We thought to uh, end this episode. Next week, we will be talking about Chapter 7 in the House of Tom Bombadil through Chapter 12, Flight to the Ford. That, I'm looking forward to it. I've enjoyed this book so far. If you haven't already, you can follow us on Twitter at HalfAsWellPod. You can also find us on our website, HalfAsWellPodcast.com, where we have a reading schedule uh, for all these episodes and also the Hall of Fire blog. Okay, I'm Sage. And I'm William. And this is Half Half as as well. Well.